Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. When we hear about scientific breakthroughs, we often don't get the chance to hear what happens behind the scene and the sheer volume of work that is required to achieve that breakthrough. This episode's guest, Dr. Dharmika Mystery, is co-founder and chief scientist at BCAL Diagnostics, a small Australian biotechnology company developing a revolutionary blood test for the detection of breast cancer. Dharmika was awarded a PhD from Macquarie University for her work on the detection and characterisation of novel biomarkers in blood and hair that can be used as the basis for a blood test for breast cancer. In 2016, Dharmika was a recipient of the New South Wales Young Women of the Year Award. She was also announced as the Young Executive of the Year in 2016 by the AFR Boss magazine. In this conversation, we unpack the role of female scientists and the personal determination required to work in the world of uncertainty and innovation. Listening to Dharmika talk about her work made me want to don the lab coat. She was passionate about her craft. Equal parts, down to worth and inspiring sums up what it was like connecting with Dr. Dharmika Mystery. Dharmika, it is lovely to be chatting with you uh, and just great to connect with you today. Yes, thank you for having me, Ali. It's a pleasure and I'm I'm really looking forward to having a, a robust discussion. There's a lot I want to discuss with you. Your career, so you're a chief scientist. My first question is, where did the interest in science and research come from for you? Uh, well, I guess it started at a really young age because I've always been quite curious and interested and I really enjoy problem solving. So I think it was one of those things that came naturally to me and I was happy with, well, happy with the way that I approached topics, but then I really loved the, the nature of science, which is you get to do hands-on as well as theory, so it's a bit of 50-50. And for me, it was really biology that just drew me into the science world. I just loved Mother Earth, human nature, all those things, and how how well everything's so orchestrated and, 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 and things just work. Um, and, and then there are some, you know, things that don't work and we have to wonder why and, and why things happen. So the question asking, the looking for answers, the experimental process, it's all very creative and I think that all is very much me um, and it just it just drew me to science I think. It's interesting because we often don't think about you know science and, and creativity and the arts are often seen as two very direct opposite things and yet what you're describing is that they actually interweave um, pretty closely. Absolutely I, I it's so not associated with science creativity and yet it's a fundamental part of how you approach the topic because it's experimentation at its finest is um you know, going into something, trying something, learning from the experience of something, and then trying to find a new way of doing it if it doesn't work for you. I mean, as human beings, we go through life doing that every single day. We, you know, try something, we either like it or hate it, and we think, oh, next time I'd do that. And that's, in a, in a way, it's just natural creativity, innate creativity. And yeah, we're constantly um, coming up with new ideas. And I think science is all about new ideas. That's how we push the frontiers of science and then come up with amazing radical technologies or even little incremental changes that 
that can impact our world or impact people around the world. So, um, yeah, I think it's fantastic. And when you talk about new ideas, it really is about, um, yeah, coming up with something that hasn't been there before. For yourself, was there, if it hadn't have been science, would there, was there any other careers on your radar that you were interested in? Uh, it was so it was so the opposite of what it is. Uh, I actually wanted to get into a fashion and jewelry design at, at, a, at a very young age. Actually, after I'd finished university, I was hell bent on making some money to travel the world and see Italy and do some I don't know do a short design course. And it was a completely different field. I think I underestimated um, the power of my degree and and what I could do with it. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It was just that I was young. I was you know twenty two or whatever and I finished studying and I'd done honours and I was just, oh, you know, I want a break, I want to go and see the world, I want to open my mind and, and grow and all those sorts of things and um, that was on my agenda but I think destiny or fate had a very different pathway planned out for me. <laughs> How did destiny intervene? Uh, well, I guess I finished university and, look, I went even before university I was hell-bent on being a nutritionist or dietitian in, um, when I'd finished high school. So I knew that I wanted to do the sciences. I knew I wanted to um, help people. And so being a nutrition dietitian in hospital was the way to go. And I missed out on that course uh, from my, at the time it was yeah, ATAR, it's called these days, I believe, um, by 0.01. So it was a very small number. And I didn't have parents that had gone to university. So we didn't know that you could probably go and speak to the faculty and, and work, you know, say, look, it's 0.01, it's pretty negligible, can I do the course? So I sort of settled with this defeat and, oh, gosh, I can't do what I really wanted to do. And um, in the end I signed up for a Bachelor of Science and um, did that degree. And along the way I discovered a love for microbiology, which is the study of bacteria, fungus and virus. And they're just super cool bugs. Um, which they, is interesting. It's probably not something most people love. So what was no, it that drew you to that? I think it's they're so small, right? They're tiny, we can't even see them by eye. But they are, impact us in so many different ways. You know, they're on our bodies as soon as we come onto this planet, from our mother's bodies and onto our bodies. They're affecting our guts. They're affecting our agriculture. It was so much fun to be working on, on something that is so invisible yet impacts our world so much and can be engineered or re-engineered to, to improve our lives. So... I think for me that was really exciting that I stayed on and did a year of honours, which I hadn't really planned on, um, but a year of pure research to understand what was research, how do you do research, how do you communicate your ideas about what you're doing to other researchers. And, and that was a really – was my favourite year. It was my favourite year honours. Um, and by the time I finished I thought, okay, yeah, you know, that was, that was awesome. I loved my degree but I – I am young and I want to travel the world and, and that's when I'd finished up and I thought, oh, crap, I need money to travel the world to get a job. Um, and I actually did. So I set out and, and looked for a job and I had a job. I won't name the company, but I had a job from a big, big, you know, big giant, I guess you could call it, but um, well-known, would look great on CV, but essentially the role was a laboratory dishwasher, <laughs> so you're washing glassware. And the other job was for a small startup that was looking at, detecting breast cancer using scalp hair and it was a bit left of center and I thought oh, okay pays a little bit less but it's interesting um and it sounds like it'll be fun so I went and did that I took the risk and went for a I mean startups in those days weren't a thing they're not everywhere so it was kind of like oh what is this very small unheard of 
company doing strange things, but I decided to go for it. And that's where I think my journey was, yeah, change shifted. You know, there was no going back from that moment. Sound like it was the um, almost the adventure that came with a pay packet rather than the overseas trip in some ways for you. That's right. So yeah, it was um, it was meant to be, and it was um, amazing. And I, so I basically I can you know say that that was the company that changed my career because I I essentially started there um, as a lab tech, really down the sort of you know just literally loading hair onto slides. It wasn't very. Um, what's the word, exciting or groundbreaking at the time. But whilst I was there, I was still always inquisitive about how the tech was working. So you've got people x-raying hair to detect breast cancer, but they didn't know the biological reason why. And through a series of experiments that I was running and, you know, using my own hair, I was able to establish establish that and it was really cool and that was the pivotal moment in my journey that changed my my life really and it's amazing it's something that obviously you're you're best known for in terms of some of that work which is really revolutionary around uh potentially getting to this point where we where we do have a blood test for the detection of of breast cancer before we go down that track i want to come back if someone is listening and they might be considering a bit of a career in in science or we hear this acronym STEM, which um, remind me, what does that stand for again? It's science. Technology, engineering and mathematics. Yeah. So if someone's considering a role or a career in that area, what insights might you give them by way of encouragement? Well, I definitely think we have to remember that science is a catalyst for change. So what when I finished with that degree all those years ago, I just did not realize how powerful it was in terms of my power as an everyday ordinary individual to do something to impact the world. I really didn't think little old me from South Sydney would ever be able to do such a thing. I wasn't exceptionally gifted at school, but my degree in science or any of the STEM subjects allows you to do that. It allows you to get out there and be proactive and be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think that's super cool because uh, education, I know education is so important, everyone talks about it, but when, you, when you've got something like that, it's, it's super, um, super powerful. I mean, you can go out there and create a new type of fabric. You can, you know, uh, create a new type of car. Like there's, there's so many things to do and you can work together. So science on its own, they're all separate disciplines, but we work together. You know, I work with engineers, I work with mathematicians for my, for my test and, um, it's an ecosystem and, and we're all out there with great ideas and we can work together to really put Australia on the map A and B, you know, build a better world, create a better world for everybody. I love what you're describing is almost this just sense of possibility that um, because in, in a lot of ways it is an industry where there are stereotypes. We sort of, we, we, we think of the, the creative geniuses um, who, you know, might be less than 1% of the world in terms of whether it's, you know, um, intelligence or uh, they just have come across something by, by accident um, and yet what you're describing is actually when you immerse yourself in that world and, and really step into the collaboration, possibility really rises to the top. Um, yeah, which I think really opens up the door for a whole bunch of, yeah, people to, to be thinking about that differently. It is an industry that's pretty limited uh, with women in, in leadership role. What, what has been your experience in what has been seen as being a fairly male-dominated field? Sure. I think it's 
so true. And, um, you know, especially in biotechnology in particular, I think in the academic side of sciences, um, there are lots of women entering the degrees, uh, not, not necessarily engineering and mathematics, but I'm saying in science, I can only speak for, um, there are lots of women entering those degrees. It's just retaining them uh, into those leadership roles. And I think in biotechnology, um, I've been very used to sort of interacting with a very male-orientated industry, but I've also had some really strong male role models who have been my biggest supporters, and that's been super helpful because it gives me the confidence. I've often had a bit of a confidence crisis, um, especially because I jumped into this quite young. So when BCAL was formed, I was 23. Uh, I wasn't a leader, in a leadership role then, but I was in a, you know, a role where we had to be in biotech, which was predominantly male. Um, and then you've also got, so you've got age and then you've got gender and you've got just the fact that I was a scientist by trade. I didn't have business skills. So there were all these different things that give me, gave me a bit of a, bit of a confidence <laughs> issue or crisis. And um, I think having those mentors was pivotal for me to be able to push myself a bit. And I'm telling you now, it's still a learning, evolving process. I'm not fully, you know, strutting out there saying, I know, I know what I'm doing and I'm fully immersed in this environment and I'm happy. It's, you know, it's, it's a learning process. And, and once you trust yourself and you know that you know what you're talking about, um, and you're okay with making those mistakes and admitting that maybe, okay, maybe that wasn't the right decision at the time, then I think you can you can work your way up. Um, nobody's going to come forward and say you're all, you know recognition is very hard to come by, um, and you've really got to be the person that pushes yourself. I think and not wait, and that's what I've learned. And I think there are um, lots of amazing women in STEM that are coming through, and I'm I'm so happy that it's such a focus of of the. Um, social media landscape and everybody out there is talking about it. And I think the more role models we push forward that break stereotypes and the typical things that we see in a scientist, you know, these turtleneck wearing glasses all that just don't know how to socially interact. That's not true. You know, we're all amazing human beings that are normal and enjoy our high heels as much as the next woman. You know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where we're, we're all human. And I think, we just need to break those stereotypes by telling stories and and showing the role models out there. Absolutely, I get it. Like like you, I get excited by the more stories that get told, and and the more people coming forward, the more um, you know, young girls want you know putting their hand up to be part of an industry, and we will change that stereotype. Absolutely, you mentioned before about mentors. Where in terms of having mentors, did you find that that was something that you sort of instigated by approaching others or was it that they almost saw something in you and um, I guess helped you out along the way? Because sometimes finding mentors can be hard. Uh, it's one thing to hear. It's a whole other thing to take the step to know who is the right mentor, how do I ask, what if they say no. Uh, so what was that process like for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was the latter for me. So someone had seen something in me um, and decided to nurture that flame and say, okay, well, you know, if you give yourself a shot, um, I'm here to back you. And it was one of those situations. And we still have that uh, relationship today. And I've got over the years, I've gathered more mentors. So I think it's not about having one mentor or trying to go out there and find someone because I can, I agree, it's very hard to 
for some people to go out there and say, hey, excuse me, would you like to be my – it's a weird situation, you know. Um, so I think it's one of those things where if you meet people, if you're networking and you meet people and you find something you admire or a skill set that you wish to acquire in someone, people are really quite wonderful. If you've got rapport with that person and you say, oh, you know, could we have a cup of coffee? Could we just chat about this? You don't have to have this one-on-one mentorship for life. It could just be a, you know, a, a, set of people that you bring into your life at specific points in time who you learn from and you bounce ideas off like a sounding board. And and that's all it really has to be. It doesn't have to be, in my case, it was a one-on-one initially mentorship, but it, it's grown into something more where I speak to a lot of other people and I ask for their advice and, and they'll just say, oh, yeah, on this topic, definitely I would say this and I know you and this is what I know about you. And it's wonderful because I can take all the different elements of those people that I respect and draw my own conclusion um, without any, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal commitment. So, yeah. And to me that's that's really powerful is to actually stop and ask the questions, ask a number of different people and then almost discern that in light of what's relevant for you. Uh, As you say, asking them of people who you admire or respect in that role. As we mentioned before, you are best known for this this work in developing a, uh, you know, revolutionary, I guess, blood tests that might be you know, for the detection of breast cancer. Often when we think about scientific breakthroughs, it's almost through a bit of a Hollywood lens. There's probably a few Hollywood movies that we've got to blame. <laughs> but what comes to mind for me is, you know, someone in a lab in their lab coat, there might be 12 coffees deep, they haven't slept for a month, and they step out of the lab and cry, Eureka. Uh, <laughs> what's it actually like when you make a scientific discovery? Oh, I feel like that's sort of how this happened, but not quite. Um, I was working on something called a synchrotron, which I'll go into. So essentially at a higher level, this company that I was working for used to x-ray hair using something called a synchrotron. And we have one in Australia, actually. They're very few in the world. And it's in Melbourne. And it's a big particle accelerator, essentially. Um, And we used the x-rays. And so when you're x-raying hair with a machine like that, it's a long shift. The hours were, you know, 12-hour shifts and things like that. So it was quite a long day's work and we split it between a few of us and work overnight. And So it was a bit like the uh, caffeine-driven mad scientist that you're talking about. But um, when we used to x-ray the hair, my hair was – I used to use some of my hair because I was a healthy young 20-odd-year-old that um, was happy to donate my hair towards the studies. And one day, you know, I had this, it's what we call a healthy control, so someone who doesn't have the disease. So my hair was looking very normal, as we say. And then one day my hair started to show the breast cancer feature. And my chief scientist or boss at the time said, oh, look, we've got to have a chat. Your hair's showing, uh, indi- like it's showing the fingerprint or the picture that indicates that you may have breast cancer. And I said, well, you know, I'm 22, I don't have the, dis- um, I don't have family history, and the only way to check is, to have a physical exam for women under the age of 40. And so I, I did, and I was clear. So we, he sort of said, what do you do to your hair that's different? I said, nothing, you know, nothing. I don't I wash it, you know, <laughs> do the same thing that everyone else does. And then it dawned on me uh, that every now and then, every few months, I might put olive oil in my hair, or I do, did put olive oil in my hair to condition it or moisturise it, and I'd leave it in there as a sort of hair mask almost. And olive oil is what we call a fat or a lipid. Another word for fat is lipid. And all this time, like I said earlier, we didn't really know 
why the phenomena was happening, but we knew something was happening. And we kind of thought maybe it was something else like proteins. We never thought it was fats. And so to come up with that, that was a real eureka moment. I remember sitting there, it was almost, you know, it was something quarter to midnight or something. And I was sitting um, with the chief scientist in Melbourne and we were, I was carrying out some really pivotal experiments. I thought, okay, let me see if I can manipulate this feature in my own hair using, you know, olive oil. And I was able to do that. And we both kind of looked at each other and went, I think we've just figured out what's causing this. And then, you know, and it was kind of almost underwhelming because I didn't believe it for a second. And then once we came back and we started looking at the, the literature and what was out there, I just couldn't contain my excitement because he basically, he and I were basically um, – had been working on this for a little while and to find that was was awesome. It was really awesome and um, to know that it had legs or had something about it that we could now move forward with to make it more exciting, uh, which eventually turned into a blood test, um, was was a very pivotal yeah moment in my journey. It was super cool. What did so, you do in those sort of hours after that? kind of that thought, that revelation, the, <laughs> the idea that olive oil can kind of point you in this direction? Yeah, so it meant that we had, uh, I guess you kind of, well, you probably, not that I was too tired to do any celebrating or anything, but um, the first thing that came to mind was, okay, we've carried out a few experiments. Now we need to think about, you know, in science, it's always awesome to have an idea. And yes, you may have proved it with a one-off experiment, but it's always good to find supporting ideas or carry out further experimentation just to reinforce the fact that you haven't just stumbled upon this and, you know, made it up. It's a strong, <laughs> a strong argument that you're putting forward. Um, so a lot of the next few hours were spent sort of researching and finding more answers to support our theory, which was great. And it happened. And then after that, it was a bit of you know, hey, we've got a, we've got something. This is awesome, and we actually put in a patent on the back of that. The very, in that coming month, that's what kept me super busy, and I didn't even know much about that sort of stuff because I was only young, and I just this was my first job out of uni. But putting in a patent was a very serious step. It meant okay, this is an idea that's worth locking down and doing something with, um, and that was. Yeah, that was worth celebrating. That was the celebration moment, I think. Mm. In terms of going down that path of pattern, was that um, an idea? Was that something you knew needed to happen? Was that something that you got some direction on that that was going to be really important part of the process? Definitely direction on um, because I think it was one of those things where I was thinking, do we have enough to even have a pattern? And that, that was the, my kind of question. You know, we've only run a, a few experiments of a few ideas. Um, so yeah, that was direction of the, of my chief scientist at the time, who is now my mentor. Um, and together we put that in and it was, um, yeah, it went through and it was all great and that was fantastic. Um, so yeah, he was the person that sort of fueled that fire a bit for me and helped me out. (laughs) What does it mean to be able to have this kind of level of, uh, detection of breast cancer through a simple blood test. What does that mean for the community at large? Well, I think there's a number of things we have to take into account when it comes to breast cancer screening at the moment. So we know that it's a really common disease. It's one in eight women around the world are diagnosed with it. And it's one of those things where the current gold standard is doing its job, but it could be better because it has limitations. So mammography is the gold standard but it's only used for women between 50 to, four, uh, to 74 years old. And now they're moving that age 
down to 40 to 74 years old because the disease is very aggressive and, and coming out in, and they're finding that it's coming um, or taking place in younger women as well. So that's a tool that uses, it x-rays the breast based on your um, breast tissue. It, so your breast density matters, right? So there are women out there who have dense breasts very naturally and they can't be great um, candidates for mammography. So we need a better tool that can be used for women of all ages that can be used in remote and rural regions because getting a mammography unit out there around our vast country is a big job for the government. Um, We need a tool that can be used for women under the age of 40 because right now all they're doing is sitting around waiting for lumps to occur and then going to their GP for a breast check every couple of years. It's not good enough. And so this kind of test, which is, you know, detecting a marker in blood which indicates the presence of the disease, has the ability to change the way that we screen for this disease. And it can be more accurate. It could be earlier and it could be used for all sorts of age groups, but also, well, every age group, but also for women who are going through treatment and monitoring, for women who are, you know, prone to or have pre disposition to the disease that have the BRCA gene mutation like Angelina Jolie. There are lots of um, reasons why we should be having this conversation and developing something that is more advanced than what we're doing now. Is it available at the moment? Is it, uh, It's not available at the moment. We're still in research and development. We're, we're, we're on our way to getting to clinical trials, which is very exciting. These sorts of things take time. Uh, unfortunately, it's just the nature of science and biotech and um, I guess it's one of the things that can be very frustrating when you're working in this industry because you know you've got something awesome and you want to get it out there as soon as possible um, but you want to do it properly and robustly and 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 right and follow all the regulatory approval pathways and that's part of the process. So, uh, you know, ambitiously BCAL Diagnostics, the company that I'm working for, is aiming for, you know, sort of 20 22, you know, to have it on the market or 2021. So, but clinical trials will be before that. And we'd want to be showing you guys that we got, we've got this, you know, wonderful translatable protocol that can be used for every woman everywhere. Exciting, exciting pathway. As you say, it can feel like it's potentially a long time coming, but, um, but the journey is going to be, yeah, exciting to get to the other end of. With, you've obviously um, been the co-founder of your the company that you mentioned, BCAL Diagnostics, and uh, I imagine that's been part of the pathway from this discovery to then getting this discovery out into the mainstream community. What has surprised you about setting up a biotech company? Oh, lots of good questions. Um, I think there are so many different things. I think the, the difficulty of raising funds, and maybe it was naivety that, you know, took me down that path. Everyone's going to love this idea. It's so good, so great. Um, but it is a high-risk idea because, you know, there are lots of people doing all sorts of amazing science around the world. Why should someone invest in you and what makes what you're doing more investable than the next person that's doing something next to you? So raising funds is one of those things in a biotech company that will always be a life source and a lifeline and something that you've got to get good at and and keep doing um, you can't actually stop and you've got to constantly ask people for their trust and their money. And um, 
I think that was surprising because, again, remember if I, if I said previously that I had confidence issues, they was definitely um, definitely ironed out when I had to do fundraising or pitching or all those sorts of things. I had to be pushed forward to to work on that. And it's always nice when you've got a good team with you that can answer different parts of the equation and you put on the show together. But um, it's it's definitely one of those things that's an uphill battle um and but it's it's a great learning curve it's a wonderful learning curve so lack of resources is the other one I think as well yes yeah of course like yeah I can imagine in what you're describing that um the ability to be able to back yourself is absolutely critical when you're standing in front of whether investors or potential investors what are some of the practical or just tangible things that have helped you even in those moments whether it's just before you walk in the door to to pitch or have a conversation or um, what do you do when you you get a knockback? What have been some of those tools and strategies that you've you've found useful for yourself? I think for me it's always been being prepared. I mean, you never know what someone's going to ask you, so you can't prepare for every question under the sun, but you should know what you're talking about and you should be able to answer you know, most of the main questions that you think you're going to get thrown at. And I think for me, doing your own research for yourself and knowing what you're talking about is super important. It doesn't matter how confident you are. If you're doing a used car salesman's pitch, people can feel it and see it if you're making things up. So you need to be, um, yeah, know your stuff, but then you've also got to be honest and have integrity. If you don't know something, the worst thing you can do is lie about it. Um, so I always say you don't know and you'd come back to people is, is the other thing because remember you're trying to build trust with someone. Um, it's okay to be a little bit nervous, I believe, if, in going into these things, but coming across as you know someone who knows it all is not a good, good look at all and people can tangibly feel that. Um, so being prepared – being, you know, having your integrity and just being very humble and honest, I think, is my – that's just who I am anyway as a person. I, I tend to be quite um, – you know, I've got colour and enthusiasm, but I'm definitely not a know-it-all and I, I love learning from the people in the room. You can always walk away from any meeting, even if you're asking for money and they're rejecting you, you're going to walk away with something that you've learnt that can help you – for the next time. And I think that's the main thing that you have to understand. No matter how many people knock you back, there's something you can improve on or learn from that. And then the next time you go in, it's just another boost of um, energy or confidence that you can go in with saying, oh, well, I've got that part covered and, you know, keep going until you kiss the, the right frog, really. <laughs> that's right. And the big part of that is the, the mindset, not only when you walk in the door, but when you walk out. Uh, I imagine that's, that's, yeah, how it helps you to step up again. When you have done everything, you've done all that planning and you've done all the research and you've backed yourself and you still get the knockback, how have you dealt with that? I think I've just learned to make failure my friend. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, very early on, so I didn't even mention earlier, sorry, but I think it's a very important part. So we'll go back for a sec. When I first put that pattern in with my co-creator of the tech um, back at the company that I first started working for, they actually went into bankruptcy. And losing my PhD, losing my IP was a big thing that happened uh, when I was very young. 
And I thought, oh, this is game over. You've just come up with this awesome idea and it's all gone out of, out of your control. There's nothing you can do like to stop it. Um, but you can do something from it. So my colleague and I decided, okay, we're going to try and find people that can help us buy the IP. Um, and that would be the way to resurrect what we're doing and save it from going underground because it's, you know, it's got potential. So I think that early, early idea that failure doesn't have to, you know, falling flat on your face or losing everything doesn't have to be the end of it. It it can just be the start of something. That whole concept um, has just made me more robust and resilient as a person. And I think all you need to do is when you fail is just learn from it really quickly. That's the key. Don't sit and dwell on it and, and sort of think, oh, gosh, it's the end of the road. But and then you come, by the time you come around from learning from it, it's too late. You want to be quick. You want to snap back and say to yourself, okay, I've learned from it and now I'm going to go in this direction. And, and that's what startup life is all about and just generally life is all about is about getting those knockbacks and zigzagging your way through really quickly to keep on moving keep on moving, keep on having traction, keep on evolving, keep on growing, all those sorts of things um, can help you. And I think that's what makes walking away from anything that seems really dour at the time much better. Thank you for sharing that because I think, yeah, sometimes sharing those failures and those moments where, you know, we we often just share the successes but, but not those moments when actually it could have all just fallen away. And a part of me wonders, you know, what other whether it's in science, what other research just hasn't got out there because people haven't kind of bounced back after failures, but also what other businesses or just what other ideas in any industry. Uh, and I think what you've described is is really important. Um, I also wonder for you that, you know, going through a failure like that or going through that, that experience, did that um, – even strengthen the resolve around the work and what you wanted to do and why you wanted to get it out there? Absolutely. That was my, what I call my turning point um, generally because I just kind of woke up and I realised, okay, this has been taken away from me and now that I can't have it or now that I can't do something with it, I've really realised it's my reason to get out of bed It's my reason to fight for what I believe in and really try harder to make something happen because I think it's worth a shot. And, you know, that was my turning into basically turning into a dogmatic, determined individual or entrepreneur that wanted to make this happen. That was my full evolution into that person. Um, And, yeah, I was, you know, pretty new to the industry side of things because in in science you've got industry and you've got academia and I'd just come out of academia technically and I've been working in this small company and it was a big transition. I was terrified of um, being so young and not having a big long scientific trail behind me. I was worried people wouldn't see me as a real scientist if I decided to take on this small idea that was not very academic um, in terms of the institution and how we were approaching it. It was very unconventional. Um so it was all very scary for me, but I don't regret it because the, for me the biggest motivation was the end goal, the impact, the ability to do something or try something or have a go at trying something that could do something for women around the world. What what aspects of the entrepreneur uh, journey, for want of a better word, or the business side of it do you enjoy? I love the um, – I think I love the fact that 
we can work very fluidly. It's not so, you know, rigid. Um, I think that we can constantly evolve and grow as our ideas change and we can work very quickly and easily wherever we want, overseas, over here, whatever we want to do, It's and bring collaborators in and out um, without all that bureaucratic, you know, going through all of that paperwork and all that sort of stuff. We can just make things happen, and I love that. Um, in saying that, though, I did work quite alone, you know, as a one-woman band um, with a board and some supporters and advisors for the first five to six years, and that was also quite lonely as well. But I think you find the resolve to to make it happen and keep on going and working with different collaborators. So you you make you make do, but I think that's been the fun part. The fun part is always the fact that you get to steer your own ship, and it's very exciting. In 2016, you were awarded a couple of pretty amazing awards. One of them you was the New South Wales Young Woman of the Year uh, and also the Young Executive of the Year by the Australian Financial Review Boss Magazine, which I guess it starts to give acknowledgement to the leadership role that you took. And I know that you're a very big advocate for young women stepping into, into leadership roles. Is there anything you wish you knew about leadership before you got to a position of leadership? But it's all, I know it sounds crazy, but it's all about people. Um, you think it's all about leading and, and your ideas and how you should make it all how happen and people should follow you, but it's actually about understanding human beings, understanding their motivation, um, and trying to create an environment for people to work together harmoniously to the greater goal. And I think that's what people underestimate. You get so many manager types that come in and think that they're being leaders, um, you know, by managing people. But really you're, you're there to, to make people follow your idea and dream and, and come on board your journey. And I think that's the most important part about leadership, that it's something that's a very soft skill. You can't necessarily learn it. Uh, out of a textbook, you can't go to uni and, and learn about it. Um, you've got to get out there and be on the ground with the people and understand your people and and um, and spend time with them. I'm personally on a mission to try and change even that word or the terminology we use around soft skills. And I, because I completely agree, I think it is around the people side of it. And yet, those soft skills are often the hardest. Uh, as you say, there's not not often a, a degree or a a textbook uh, that will give you the, I guess, the five things to do when someone's standing in front of you <laughs> um, as a leader. That's exactly right. And, um, it, you know, I mean, so many of the things, even the, you know, mathematical or budget style things and pitching technology, I've learned it on the job and that's fantastic. It's just such a fantastic way to grow and learn. It's very exponential um, you're going to learn very quickly if you've done something wrong. And that's the same with people. If you've got this way of behaving and you, you're not going to accommodate or learn from it or listen to the people that are around you, then you're not going to grow. Uh, that's what I think anyway, because you just won't change. And then, you know, you just can't create that environment by being so stubborn. And, st and as a founder, I think, you know, there are lots of, we've got a, a few co-founders at Big Cal, but as founders, 
sometimes the one thing that you can do that's best for your business is step back and say, actually, I can't do this part of this job or this is not where I'm supposed to be. I, I probably should be back in the lab or p- perhaps I should be back doing something else. Um, I'm not made for this particular position. And admitting that will actually just help the business, not make it worse. And it's okay to be that person that says, this isn't for me. Uh, at the moment, I'm, I feel like I'm doing a good job and I'm very happy where I am and I enjoy what I'm doing and I'd like to continue that. So I know that I have lots to learn. I'm not saying I know it all, but I want to keep learning to, to be the leader of BCAL. How do you how do you motivate people? I mean, it's um, you you're in an industry, and certainly the the need and the purpose um, can be very close to people's hearts. So it can be you know in some ways an easier way to motivate people. But it's also it's a long game, as you say. You're kind of working towards something that may not get out into the community for another four years, even though clinical trials may happen. Um, And when you're working long hours and um, sometimes making incremental gains in amongst the um, exponential gains, what are the ways that you motivate the people that you work with? I think for us, those incremental gains or small steps are the successes that we need to celebrate. And we forget to celebrate because we're always waiting for that big milestone and saying, oh, we've, we've done the big one now and that's the most important. It's not necessarily true. There are lots of startups that die out or fail um, quite quickly. So you've got to remember the small wins are the ones that show progress and all of that progress is important. It's all, you know, forward moving. Um, parts where you worry or where you might have concern or where you start to see yourselves really, really dipping, dipping, dipping or going down or stagnating even. Um, so any form of progress is a reminder, as I say to everyone, you know, it's a reminder that we're going in the right direction. Each time somebody publishes something externally or independently that is along the same idea that we're working on, I think that's a wonderful thing because it means more people are validating that idea independently. And that's how I keep the buzz and the excitement about what we're doing because it can be such a lonely journey as a small company from Australia um, doing this on our own or we're collaborating now, but doing things, you know, in a, on a small scale without all the resources we need, we have to remind ourselves that we've come a long, long way with the very limited resources that we've got and a very small team um, and we're doing something awesome and small steps are okay. I, I think you've got to be grateful for every, every little positive step forward. Absolutely, and take the moments to celebrate. I think that's that's really important uh, reminder for all of us. We think about doing it, but we often just move on to the next thing really quickly. We know change is is um, probably the only constant thing in our in our lives and in our world. And on a personal level, you're about to face um, a new change. I understand you're you're six months pregnant. I am, I am. Which is very <laughs> exciting. Congratulations. And so Thanks. how over, you know, obviously with the work that you're doing and, um, and the, you know, bub on the way, what are the ways that you look after yourself in amongst the busyness? Um, I guess so. I've always, you know, initially I used to work and get everything done and I'm a very big box ticker. You know, I get absolute satisfaction out of getting things done ticking off that box um, and I tend to 
organizing work quite effectively to get my time to play or have fun because for me I have to have the 50-50. It's not easy and it used to, you know, cons- I used to work on weekends and do all sorts of things, just, you know, get a little email done here or work on this document here and now I've made it quite a rule to sort of not do anything unless it's super, super, super urgent um, on the weekend. The weekends are mine for me um, and I work smart as opposed to working just for the hell of it um, to make sure I can manage everything because I think, you know, we don't. We work for this awesome um, end goal, but we also are living a life. And now that I'm pregnant, I totally understand that I'm going to have to let go of the reins a bit in a little while and focus on family for a little while. And, uh, you know, the whole thing was a complex as well for a little while because I was worried about how would this, uh, how would I approach this, how would I manage it. But I've got a good team and and I've got flexible working conditions for my return. Um, there are all sorts of things that you can do and we can do as as a company to make sure that everyone can feel like they work to their own schedule, but it's more outcome-based as opposed to, you know, time-based. So I think that's super – that's the beauty of, I guess, entrepreneurship and startups, that you can make it outcome-based and people can work comfortably to get to have that work life or work – you know, life and life and career balance or whatever it is that you'd like to call it. Yeah, 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 and that word balance. But being able to, um, yeah, have the space where they almost integrate together, they, they become one for you. And I think, yeah, that sometimes it's the, you know, having bumps is an, almost like a natural disruption that happens in, I think, in a business world or in a leadership yeah. kind of space. And so it gives the opportunity for your team to, to step up or to um, get really clear about where are we doing things that actually help us move forward and where are we actually spending our time on the things that uh, of value, but not necessarily the most valuable things as well. So I often see them as times to just pause and, and reflect on some of that for yourself. I'd love to um, come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think it's about doing what you feel makes you stand out I guess I think you know it's one of those things where if I feel like I'm doing everything that makes me a little bit happy or a little bit purposeful or um, significant in the world doing something for others is is one of my favorite things to do then that's me doing my standout life and I think being myself is the biggest thing for me so I am this you know I'm obviously I've got an Indian background I also am very Australian I love my jewellery. I've always loved colour. I'm a little bit out there in terms of the way I dress. I speak quite forwardly. I'm colourful and creative, uh, but I'm also a scientist who has all these, you know, fact-based, <laughs> um, driven sort of um, tendencies. So I think it's just about being really true to who you are and it doesn't matter where your scars with pride stand out and um, just own it. I think that's my bottom line. I think own it and be who you are. Beautiful. I love that. Wear your scars with pride uh, and throw a bit of colour on at the end of the day. Beautiful. It's just been lovely to chat with you, Damika. My pleasure, Ali. Thanks for having me. 
If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.